song this morning, Lord, we know that you are our only hope. Lord, help us to be mindful of that as we go through this passage this morning from your gospel. Lord, may now the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For it's in Jesus' name I do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, or if you don't have your Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to grab one of our pew Bibles and open them to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, um, verses 13, 14 to 30 that Father Ben read a minute ago, because um, that's going to be our scripture uh, that I'm going to refer back to several times. There's going to be some things that I'm going to point out that I hope you can see in the text uh, or maybe uh, remember uh, after this sermon or may uh, want to take away from here. Uh, that's page 860 of the Pew Bible that's in front of you. So, uh, wh- and, and while you're turning there, again, it's Luke chapter 4, verse, uh, beginning with verse 14. Hold your finger there for just a second. You know, if... Uh, You look through history, whenever a new leader comes on the scene, for instance, like the president of the United States, you will hear and see them very early on in their office and mission, setting the course of direction in which they plan to lead. And they may have certain slogans or certain words or certain things that they say that indicate what's fixing to happen. I remember back in 1981, I was six years old at that time, which I I can't, I kind of weird. I like to tune into politics a little bit, even when I was a kid, just a tad. But, uh, but I remember Ronald Reagan's inaugural address, and he's, and he's really famous for quoting, or really famous for his quoted saying, or for his saying, that that particular year, that government was not the solution to our problem. Government actually is our problem. I wish some folks would maybe go back and look at that today. And then John F. Kennedy, this was before my time, in his inaugural address, he is famous for saying, Ask not what you can do for your country, excuse me, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your what? Country. Right. See, we all know those things. And then it's over, but in Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 14 and all the way through 30, we see Jesus doing exactly the same thing. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, he comes and he gives a summary in Luke 4 as to what his ministry and his message as Messiah is all about. And he tells us what he's going to do. And so this morning as we look at this passage, there really are two main realities I want us to see. Number one, Christ's message and ministry is good news for the destitute. And then secondly, Christ's message and ministry is actually offensive to the proud. It's good news for the destitute, offensive to the proud. First, Christ's message and ministry is good news for the destitute. Now, before we can get into the meat of this passage... There, there's some background things you need to be aware of uh, it, it, before we get to, to Luke 4.13. See, if you're reading through Luke's gospel, when you get to Luke 4.13, you'll see Jesus come onto the scene as the local boy made good. The Bible says that a report went out about him, about his preaching in the synagogues, and that he, that being Jesus, was praised by all. So apparently his preaching and teaching was pretty good. And so when Jesus goes back to Nazareth, his hometown, in verse 16, he's kind of become a celebrity in this little area. It's kind of like if someone in your neighborhood uh, made it on The Voice or American Idol or some show like that and they returned back home. You know, it's kind of a big deal. And it would be a big deal in Nazareth because scholars tell us that back in that time, Nazareth maybe have had 500 people in it tops. 
And so you can be fairly certain that Mary and Joseph's boy, who's well known, when he comes back to town, the small town of Nazareth, it's going to be the gossip of the community. What's he going to say? We hear he's preaching in all these synagogues and all over these towns. What's he going to do? Well, the Sabbath comes. Everyone gathers in anticipation. And Jesus opens the scroll to Isaiah 61, 2. I'll read that again in Luke 4, 18. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he closes the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and he sits down. And the Bible, Luke tells us, it's quiet. Everybody's staring at him. You can hear people breathing. It's so quiet. Then he says in Luke 4.21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what's going on here? Okay? To really get the impact of Jesus' actions and his words, you need to know a little bit about the structure of Isaiah. See, Isaiah is a big long book in the Old Testament. And in chapters 1 to 39, essentially Isaiah is God's message that he sends to his people to confront them about their sinful living. He warns them about an impending judgment and exile that's going to come if they do not turn back to God. And then Isaiah chapters 40 to 59, they they begin to talk about deliverance and hope that God's people are are, are issued some promises that there's going to be comfort and that, you know what, you're going to go into exile, but it's going to come to an end. Then you come to Isaiah chapter 60 and it reveals the glory of God's people, that the Israel, God's people are going to be fully restored and this is what it's going to look like. And then in Isaiah 61, it's predicted that an anointed preacher will show up whose life and message will restore not just God's people, but the entire world. So to put it all together, when Jesus reads Isaiah 61 that day in the synagogue and then says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he is outright stating, yeah, this passage right here in Isaiah 61 that I just read, it's about me, Mary and Joseph's boy. I am the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I am that anointed preacher that Isaiah speaks of. And this message and ministry that's laid out in Isaiah 61? Yeah, that's what I'm about to do. And it's kind of mic drop there. So what is the message and ministry of Messiah? What did Jesus Christ come do? What is this about? Well, as I said earlier, it is good news for the destitute. What do you mean? Well, there are four metaphors that describe the work of Jesus and how it is good news for the, for, the, for the destitute. Those four metaphors are the poor, the prisoner, the blind, and the oppressed. So first, let's look at verse 18. Christ comes to proclaim good news to the poor. And when we think of the poor, we think it is of those who lack economic means oftentimes. When we hear this word poor, we think, it of, uh, think of people who have very little. But the Greek word here translated poor is actually, if I can get this right, I think it's thokos. I can't exactly pronounce it right. It's kind of an odd spelling. 
But it means to cringe and cower down like a beggar. I remember when my wife and I were, were walking around in Venice, everyone told us to be careful of gypsies because they were really, really good about portraying that they were really poor when they actually were not. But what they would do is they would come and they would cover their hands or they would slump down like this and they'd put their hand out like this and kind of ease beside you or make sure that you were in their path <laughs> or, that if they were gonna, or you were going to cross their path so they could beg for money. And usually didn't say anything. But this word here in the Greek, it conveys the image of a person begging with one hand out and then another hand over their face, hiding their identity in shame because of their abject bankruptcy of all resources. So what's this about? Listen, Messiah will come and bring good news to the spiritually talk-offs, not necessarily the socioeconomic poor, but to all people who are spiritually destitute and know it. We see this happen in Luke 5. You can flip over a few chapters. You don't have to. But with Levi the tax collector. Levi was not poor socioeconomically, okay? He was a tax collector. He made a great living at ripping people off. That's why all the tax collectors are hated in the Bible. They would charge more than they were supposed to charge and simply put it in their pocket. But friends, he was spiritually destitute. And he had many friends who were spiritually destitute. And Levi decides he's going to throw a little party. And he invites all his spiritually destitute friends over. Along with Jesus. And the religious elite, the Pharisees, they're all standing at a distance. They see this taking place. And they get all up in arms about Jesus hanging out with such folks. And when they finally confront him, Jesus says to them, Listen, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, Jesus is like, yeah, look, I know they're spiritually destitute. They know it too. The poor that Jesus is talking about in Luke are sinners. Sinners who know they are sinners. Who know they have nothing to commend themselves of before God. They know that their good works, that being a good person, that having religion, that having morality, and even helping the poor are all bankrupt and devoid of saving resources before God. He knows that the poor actually need to come. Jesus is talking about the poor who come with one hand over their face and one hand outstretched, begging for God's mercy and salvation. You look through the Gospels, that's exactly the kind of people you see Jesus coming to. But beloved, the talkos, the poor, the spiritually poor, that's all of humanity. It's you and me, if we're honest. We're all spiritually poor in this respect. The difference is, some people know it, and some people don't. See, friend, you can be poor economically, but proud. Messiah brings good news to those who are spiritually bankrupt, who are spiritually destitute, who know it, and come to the Lord saying, just with the old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, but only to thy cross I cling. Secondly, Christ comes to set captives free. In verse 18, he says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives or the prisoners. Well, what are those? Well, the word liberty or release there first in this text is alphasis, and at its core it means forgiveness or pardon. Not just liberty, but forgiveness or pardon. And captives, that, that particular word, it conveys that these captives are not just uh, captives to their own thing, but they're actually prisoners of war who have been taken by a powerful force, brought to prison for crimes they have committed and are awaiting their execution. 
So when Jesus talks about setting the captives free, just as he was not talking about the literal poor people, he's not talking about literal prisoners in the synagogues that day either. He's talking about spiritual prisoners. People who are in spiritual bondage. Which, friend, is also all of humanity who are without Christ. See, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 tells us that all in Adam are enslaved to sin, right? And that, and that all will die. But that in Christ, all shall be made alive. And friends, Christ came to set people free from their bondage of sin who are in captive to their sin. He came to set them free from death. Another example or illustration of that, you can see it in Luke 7. There's a lady there who, set, who is uh, a captive who is set free from her sin. In the midst of a mixed dinner party of common folk and a posh religious crowd, a woman known publicly as a sinner, she was a prostitute more than likely, she comes and she washes Jesus' feet with her tears, drying them with her hair and kissing them and anointing them and won't stop. And Jesus looks down at her and says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Beloved, this blows the Pharisees' minds. If he was really a prophet of God, he would know this woman was a sinner. Who is this who can forgive and pardon sins? But beloved, that day Christ set her free from her defects as well as her illicit profession. Messiah came not to just set free from sin or captives free from their sin or your and our sin, but also he came to set people free from death. You can go over and flip over a little bit farther. In Luke 7, 11 and 17, Jesus comes upon a funeral, funeral procession. There's a widow there. She's lost everything she's had. Her son is dead. And I mean dead, dead, dead. And Jesus comes to the funeral procession and does something I couldn't imagine anyone actually doing unless they can pull this off. This man's laying dead in a coffin. He walks over and says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the boy comes back to life. Thought about forgiving sins was something. What about this man who can bring people back, dead people back to life? See, Messiah said he came to set captives free, not just from their sin, but also death. But friends, it is interesting how some people today think they are free. That they're not captive. I'm the slave of nobody. Was it, Father Ben, you say, you're not the boss of me? <laughs> and we hear about freedom and rights to do this and to do that. You can turn on any newscast or anything you want to. Blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on and on. I have a right to do this in America. Friends, you can see this attitude of this rampant freedom to do anything in a sexual revolution today, which simply said, which more or less says, I can have sex as much as I want with who I want when I want. And I have a right to be free from any of you Christians who tried to make me feel guilty about it. Sadly, more often than not, they even imply that we Christians are the ones in bondage who need to be liberated. Perhaps we do in some areas. But sadly, friends, what oftentimes looks like freedom to the world is actually a prison. I cannot remember having a talk with anyone that this hasn't happened talk with anyone who's lived outside the bounds of the Bible's teachings on sex and marriage. The guilt, the faces, the presence of those partners, and all the things that go into the events, they linger. They can't get away from it. They're captives until Christ comes, sets them free, 
And much like that woman that day at Jesus' feet, he pardons them and forgives them. Christ comes to proclaim good news to the poor, to pardon and liberate captives from sin and death. But the third metaphor, back to verse 18, Christ comes to recover sight of the blind. And the blindness that Jesus talks about here is symbolic of all humanity who can't see their poverty or their destitution, their enslavement, their need for Christ or their need for truth. By virtue of being a sinner, a sinner is blind, spiritually speaking, unless Christ intervenes. And friends, there are several ways that people can be spiritually blind. Some folks are just blinded by their own choice. Some people know that they are sinners and need Christ, but they choose just not to see. Or they choose to ignore it, and they just can't not seem to come to the truth. They're not ignorant of their condition. They just refuse to do anything about it. Some are blinded by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There you have it. Some folks are just occupied with the world, the flesh, and the devil and become so fixated and distracted in life and have their mind on everything else but God. And yeah, there's probably some influence of the evil one there present. Then Romans 1 describes, if you read through Romans 1 all the way through, there really is a condition where God basically gives people over to exactly what they want and to their own blindness can happen over time to people who repeatedly deny God, Romans 1, 8, 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Friends, they just can't see it. But Messiah comes to open the eyes of the blind. Over in Mark, you've got blind Bartimaeus, right? Maybe you remember the story. Jesus is coming through the crowd and he's screaming the whole time, son of God, have mercy on me. And people tell him to shut up and be quiet, whoever that loud guy is over there. Jesus hears him, tells him to come over there. He's like, what do you want me to do for you? He's like, my teacher, I want to see. He knew he was blind. He knew he needed to see. And not just see with these eyes, but to see the son of God. John, and, and to follow him. John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus comes to show us the way. He comes to illumine our path and show us the direction to go. But fourthly, Christ comes to set free the oppressed. Who are the oppressed? Well, oppression actually in this context, really the only way to read it and understand it, it it's describing those who are overwhelmed by the effects and pain of this life due to their own sinful choices, the sin of the rest of humanity that's surrounding them, and just the effects of living in a fallen world. Depressed are those who are overwhelmed by the sickness, the cancer, the death, the bad relationships, the abuse, abusive people, the financial woes, the mental illness, the depression, just the toil of thorns and thistles of work in this life and bad choices in this life. I could go on and on and on with the list. Maybe that's you this morning, I don't know. How does Christ free the oppressed? Listen to Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Christ did not come to add to our misery. He didn't come to tie up more burdens upon us. He comes to give us rest in the midst of our misery. 
I learned this new phrase in a book my life group's going through this semester. Um, It's called Christian Fatigue Syndrome, CFS for short. And it's essentially where you're doing a lot of, it's where the Christians find ourselves and a lot of us find ourselves caught up in these types of things. We're doing lots of good things and lots of godly things and lots of things that look like Jesus. And man, but you know what? At the end of the day, when we're honest about it, they leave us empty, distressed, afflicted, overwhelmed, and it results in us losing our joy in the Lord. Beloved, Christ came to give us rest, not wear us out. Then lastly, Luke 4, 19, uh, Isaiah says this about Messiah. Christ quotes it. The Messiah comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What does that mean? He's ref- the, Lord's, the year of the Lord's favor is the year of Jubilee. See, the year of Jubilee is spelled out in Leviticus 25. If you want to know where that's at, you can look it up later. But Jubilee came about about every 50 years, or came about um, 50, about every, excuse me. <laughs> Jubilee came about every 50 years in the life of God's people, at least ways it was supposed to. The land was to be returned to its original owners and given a time of rest. All debts were to be canceled. Slaves and indentured servants were, be, were, to allow, were allowed to go free if they wanted to do so. And really, to put it in context, it'd be like today if your mortgage, your car payments, your credit cards, and any other payments or anything else you're in financial debt to just being wiped off the books. Wouldn't that be awesome? I said in the first service, man, why doesn't somebody run that as a campaign thing right now in the presidential election for economics? It puts some people out of business, but that, you know, okay. Wiped off the books for good. Friend, that's exactly what God does for his people in Jesus Christ. He wipes out our debt of sin. He gives us a fresh start today and every day. And that's good news. That's great news. Who are the poor then? Who are the blind? Who are the captives? Who are the oppressed? Listen, friend, it's each and every one of us sitting in here under the sound of my voice this morning, including me. Friend, do you know that today? Can you accept that? That leads us to our next point, which is really a point of application. See, to conclude, Christ's message and ministry is good news for the destitute, but also, number two, Christ's message and ministry is offensive to the proud. And friends, this story is just amazing to me. In verse 22, the Bible says they loved what Jesus had to say. They were excited about it. They spoke well of him, these gracious words pouring out of his mouth. Man, it's the year of Jubilee. Captives are going to be set free. The blind are going to see. Man, this is an amazing, amazing time that's fixing to happen. Wow, how awesome is that? Then just five verses later in verse 29, they're ready to kill him. From one extreme to the other. Why? What happened? Friends, Jesus did not just preach good news that day. He actually got into the, I'll just call it what it is, the stink of people's lives in this case. And particularly in this case, the people who are listening to him, he exposes their religious facade and and their self-righteousness. Why? Why did he do this? How did that happen? Friends, the people in Jesus' hearing that day did not identify themselves as destitute. They didn't see themselves as poor. 
They didn't see themselves as blind nor captive or oppressed sinners who needed to be set free by Messiah. No, they believed they were God's chosen covenant people who thought that Messiah essentially would come back and dish out justice on everyone else out there but them. And so Jesus gets into their lives and he calls them out on this. Does it in two ways. First, he knows some in the crowd won't accept his message no matter what he says. And they will always want more nuance and more proof of who he is. Luke 4, 23. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here now in your hometown as well. In other words, he's saying this is going to be y'all's response. If you really are the Messiah, if you really are the Son of God, then do it by proving a miracle right here, right now. And then I'll believe that you're Messiah. Some of us, if we're honest, that's pretty much how we probably have responded to Jesus. There's something in our life that we want to go away. It will not happen. Jesus will not take it away, or God won't take it away. We've prayed for it to, come, to go away, or we were asking for a miracle, and it won't happen. And we kind of get into this deal thing with... Wanting Jesus to prove himself. Jesus, if you really, really love me, or Jesus, if, if you really are the God, Son of God, or Jesus, if you really, really love me, you'll prove it now by doing a miracle in my life. For many today cannot accept Jesus as Messiah because, well, they need more proof. They need more nuance. Instead of simply accepting what he says by faith. Second, he exposes their pride. He exposes their pride in a little history lesson about Elijah and Elisha. This is in their history books. See, both of those prophets were sent to God's people, their hometown, if you will. But God's people rejected them. As a result, both Elijah and Elisha were, went and were sent and ministered to Gentiles instead of the Israelites, God's chosen people. And so when Jesus brings this little issue up in their life, what he's implying to them that day is like, look, you know now, looking back, that Elijah and Elijah were legitimate prophets, sin of God, with messages that confronted people of their sin, but yet offered hope. But you people tried to reject, or you people rejected and tried to kill them. And just like you rejected Elijah and Elisha, you here today in the synagogue, you'll reject your Messiah too when he shows up. Why? You won't accept Messiah because you can't acknowledge your sin or your need. They were stuck. And as soon as these words come out of his mouth, they do reject Jesus. See, the people in Jesus' hearing that day could could not acknowledge their need of salvation and their need to be set free by Messiah because they did not identify themselves as poor. They did not identify themselves as captive. They did not see themselves oppressed or destitute sinners. And get this, and this is the key, and they did not want anyone else telling them that that's who they were or what, or excuse me, that that's what they were or that's who they were either. And the rest of Luke tells us, or excuse me, the rest of Luke 4 up to verse 30 tells us they were filled with wrath They drove him out of the town, took him up to a high hill, and tried to kill him. Of course, they couldn't do it because his time had not yet come. And church is oftentimes tempting to say, well, you know, if I'd been there, I wouldn't have done that. (laughs) I wouldn't have been part of that crowd. I'd be like, can't you hear what this guy's saying? Can't you understand? I mean, you know, 
Give Jesus a break. (laughs) Mary and Joseph's boy, cut him some slack. But you know what? Friend, the same thing happens here today. Beloved, it is still the year of the Lord's favor. What do you mean? Listen, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, week after week after week, the gospel is continuously proclaimed, not just in this church, but other churches. The gospels proclaim that God in his love sent his son Jesus to die for the poor, to die for the blind, to die for the captive, to die for the oppressed, all of humanity. People are challenged to repent, challenged to change, challenged to grow in their faith, challenged to walk with Christ. And you know, if we're honest about it, we tend to be okay with the gracious words of Jesus. We like that first part, you know, about poor, blame, you know, lie, or lame, blind, all that good stuff. We, we, we like the good news that's being proclaimed until Christ gets in our mess and our junks and our junk and calls us out on it. Friend, what's your response when Jesus does that? I don't know if this has ever happened for you. But I've had issues in life where I'm reading through the scriptures. I'm like, what did I do? I more or less drove him out to the edge of town and tried to throw him off a cliff. Jesus, you have no right to say that to me. God, you have, who are you? (laughs) We've all done it, if we're honest tend to tune the preacher out or our spiritual guides that are around us out or we stop what are the activities in life that expose us to the truth and sometimes it's frankly the Holy Spirit stirring around in our hearts and saying you know you got this thing and you need to deal with it and you need to address it and you know and I'm, I, I mean I've been there I get it I understand that's a painful spot to be in and we start avoiding our friends who hold us accountable we're, we're, if we're doing all that, we're basically taking Jesus over here and saying, you know what? <laughs> I like the gracious words. Thank you for accepting me. Yeah, you are accepted. You need to change. No, no, no. Oh, thank you for accepting me, but you need to change. No, I don't want to change. And we take him out to the edge of the hill to push him off the cliff. And beloved, our response should be something along these lines. I don't know how you may say it or articulate it. But God, I am destitute. Lord, I... I need your mercy every day. But Jesus, you come and set me free from my sin and sins and my death. That Jesus, you open my eyes to your truth about myself and the world. Jesus, define for me what reality is, please. I don't know. And Lord, help me to enter your rest. Lord, change me. Lord, give me more of you. Change me more into your image, Jesus. That would have been the, best, the proper response that day. Beloved, Christ's message and ministry is good news for the destitute. Christ's message and ministry is oftentimes offensive to the proud. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you at this time to stand with me as we confess the words that we believe or the faith that we believe in the words of the Nicene Creed.
In peace we pray to you, Lord God, for all people in their daily life and work. For this community, the nation, and the world. For all who work for justice, freedom, and peace. For the just and proper use of your creation. For the victims of hunger, fear, injustice, and oppression. For all who are in danger, sorrow, or any kind of trouble. For those who the friendless, and the needy. For the peace and unity of the Church of God. For Foley and Honest Four, our archbishops, for Stephen and Quigg, our bishops, and for all bishops and other ministers. For all who serve God in His church. For the special needs and concerns of this congregation. Hear us, Lord. For your mercy is we thank you, Lord, for all the blessings of this life. We exalt you, O God, our King and praise your name forever and ever. We pray for all who have died in Christ, that they may have a place in your eternal kingdom. Lord, let your loving kindness be upon them. Who put their trust in you. We pray to you also for the forgiveness of our sins, kneeling if able. On us, most merciful Father, in your compassion, forgive us our sins, known and unknown, things done and left undone. And so uphold us by your Spirit, that we may live and serve you in newness of life, to the honor and glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Almighty God, have mercy on you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, Strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. Amen. Please stand. The peace of the Lord be always with you. And with your spirit. Greet one another with signs of peace and reconciliation. God's peace. (laughs) God's peace, guys. I won't interrupt the moment. (laughs) God's peace. Thank you, sir. God's peace, good to see you. God's peace. God's peace, pain. God's peace, brother. God's peace, Dale. God's peace, Jim. God's peace, good to see you. God's peace, John. Ah. We got a lot of guys. Yeah. yeah. Well, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, good morning. 
as you return back to your... S- Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. <laughs> welcome to Christ Church. Uh, I'm Keith Hoffman. I'm associate rector here. and just want to say a welcome to uh, extend a warm welcome to all our visitors here. We hope you have found uh, this place to be uh, uh, open and warm and welcoming to you this morning. As you've, uh, And we're, we're thankful you've come here to worship with us. Um, we do have a favor to ask of you, though. We have these little things called Connect Cards in the back of your pew. And uh, we simply, uh, if you're a visitor, just ask you to just write your name on this and put this in the pew as it comes by. Um, I, and I always tell people this and qualify it. We don't stalk you or anything like that. But we do want to pray for you wherever you may be on your journey with the Lord. And, uh, and also, it lets us keep a record, know that you were here. So we thank you for doing that. But I would ask you to look on down the list. There's several little check boxes of things, additional information you might want to know. For instance, you say, I- I'd like to know what's going on. Uh, weekly at Christ Church. Well, you'll need to add, uh, check the box that says, please add me to your weekly update list and make sure we have your address, email, and a phone number, contact information. And, uh, and we'll make sure that we send our parish notes to you. They come out in an email one time a week. And that's really your key to knowing all the ins and outs and details of Christ Church. And again, just look on the card. There's all sorts of other information you may want to know about as well. And then on the back, we also make a place for prayer requests. We gather as a staff team and uh, on that Tuesday, and we pray for whatever is on the back of these cards. So um, we uh, always uh, are amazed to see the prayer ministry that God has in this church, and the answer to prayers uh, is, is, is astounding and thankful to be part of it. Um, couple of uh, announcements just real quickly for this week. Uh, coming up next weekend on the 6th of February between the times of 11 a.m. and 2 p.m., we're going to be having a church all clean. And essentially what that means is everybody kind of comes to the church. Miss Lisa Breeding will be here and she'll have all sorts of little lists and areas and things that you can clean and do. We're asking folks bring a few cleaning supplies along. The more people who show up, the sooner we all get to go home. Um, also, I, I say, look, okay, cleaning, vacuum cleaner is not my thing. Good. Um, Our yard guys are going to need some help that day too. They're cleaning. uh, They're doing some gutter work outside and a lot of other, few other little kind of minor yard keeping uh, things. So they would love to have you. And then also we plan on blasting what used to be the men's bathroom. So uh, we've notified the county. And so when the building shakes, don't worry about it. It's just the old 50-year-old toilets coming off the wall. And so we're pretty sure they came over on the ark or something. But so we've got to get rid of these things. So... uh, also on February 12th and 14th, uh, Bishop Steve Breedlove will be here. And on the, uh, let's see, on the 14th at 11 a.m., we will have a confirmation service. Uh, Bishop Breedlove will be preaching in both of those services, both the 9 and the 11. Um, Father, uh, excuse me, Bishop Breedlove is, is an amazing communicator, um, a great student of the Bible, and an amazing uh, Bible, uh, just spirit-anointed preacher. So you will not want to miss that um, on the 14th of February. In a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And at Christ Church, you do not have to be Anglican to participate in communion with us. However, you do need to be a baptized follower of Christ who comes in faith and repentance. And so when you come forward, simply make your hand into a tray like this. And uh, me or Father Ben Warren will place uh, bread into your hand. And you may partake of the, the, the chalice that will be on our left and our right. Um, if you say, you know what, I, 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 it's not authentic for me to participate in communion this morning, but I don't want to embarrass myself because other folks are getting up and there's kind of a line forming. Listen, just simply come forward, cross yourself like this, and that lets us know not to try to pray a prayer, or not to try to give you bread, but rather to pray a prayer of blessing upon you instead. Or you can just remain in your pew, and there's some prayers in a service guide, the uh, ivory service guide in the back uh, to help you, um, or maybe to, to meditate on and contemplate. Contemplate while we're having communion. 
During this time also, we have a prayer ministry here at Christ Church. And um, certainly, um, if the Lord has spoken to you or t- 